Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode six in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 10th of March. And Leon, today we're talking to a most interesting American called David Thomas Roberts. David Thomas Roberts is a serial entrepreneur. He's the author, he's an author and he's what he calls a renegade capitalist. And he actually says this might be the greatest time in history for people to start a business. And that's quite a telling thing for in this day and age where people in an uncertain job market. Absolutely. It requires a bit of courage nonetheless. He is going to talk to us all about the secrets of becoming an entrepreneur. And after that, we'll talk to Saul Leslie. It'll be terrific. Okay, let's listen to David Thomas Roberts. We started by asking him how he saw the environment and the climate for an enterprise. Connectivity and technology is available to us today. I think it's the best time in history to start a business because you're not encumbered by by uh, having customers that are near and dear to you from a proximity standpoint. You could have literally have customers all over the globe, and it, with connectivity and technology, uh, you're not limited uh, regionally or even in your neighborhood to have customers. So that's that's uh, principally one of the reasons why, and it doesn't take a lot of money depending on what kind of business you're starting to start a business. So um, uh, I, I just think that they, you know, I, the other thing is too is the millennials have what I call the gig economy, where you're seeing millennials today, they will have two or three different things going on um, because they en- enjoy their freedom and don't, don't want to report to an eight to five job in a cubicle somewhere. So they may do two or three different things in order to provide them the freedom and the lifestyle that they want. So it's just all kinds of opportunities that are available to us out there. And uh, are you seeing this trend now? Uh, definitely. Uh, it's. It, it, I do think that the millennials have picked up this trend more so than, than other generations. Um, but um, we're definitely seeing this trend. You know, sometimes it's, it's, you know, a lot of people go in business for themselves for different reasons. Some could be they've been downsized. They're making less money than they were before. Some of the people are displaced. Uh, I know Leon talks about that. I've read some of the some of the articles Leon's put out on being displaced by technology. That's happening a lot. So a lot of folks are having to go out and find other ways to create income because they're forced to. And um, so we're we're seeing this gig economy like this quite a bit. What particular sectors is this happening in? Well, it's it's always going to be prevalent in retail. Because it seems to be that's that people think that when they go in business, they're thinking retail. But um, I'm, especially when you're turning a hobby into a business or trying to turn a hobby into a business. But we're seeing that in, in all different kinds of industries, not not just in retail, but in transportation and financial and um, publishing. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, it's definitely a movement. And, uh, you know, there's there's so many different ways now to make yourself look like you're a larger company than you are. And um, everything from your websites to, you know, virtual um, voice over IP uh, telephone systems to you name it. So um, it, it's pretty much across all industries for what we've seen. And I would imagine these uh, these methods of making your company look bigger than it is, uh, is, is it would actually be a lot cheaper. It would actually not be that expensive these days. No, uh, not at all. Um, uh, you know, I just, uh, when, when we started my technology business 19 years ago, it cost us $1,000 and we had a uh, folding 
metal card table and two folding metal chairs, and we actually rented a closet. <laughs> we for a closet we actually used a uh, a demarcation point for our telephone system as our uh, as our office. But but today, I mean, literally, if if you have a laptop or if you have an iPad uh, and a telephone, you can run a business. Does that mean uh, these people need special training, uh, business schools and things like that, uh, entrepreneurial courses, or can they just do it? I, I don't think you have to have a college education to be successful. I'm not going to discourage folks from going to college. I, I didn't finish college. I, I got uh, disillusioned when I was in college because I thought I was going to college to make money. The problem with today's universities, and this is across the globe, not just in the United States. I'm sure it's this way also in, in Australia. There's very few programs that, that we've seen that offer degree paths and entrepreneurship and, and the life skills that are necessary to succeed financially. What we see is degree paths that, that prepare people to have a job. So when you have somebody uh, who is of the same makeup, for instance, that I am, who always knew from a very early age that I wanted to be in business for myself, and they go to school and they're being taught how to go out and get a job, it's easy for them to get a disillusioned. Now, everything being equal, I, I wish I had a degree, but I don't. But that, just the, for the fact that you don't have a degree doesn't mean you, can, you can't be successful. But the same token is just because you have a degree, that doesn't mean that you can't be successful. So I think a, a degree helps in a lot of different ways. With, with all these uh, new businesses that are being set up, it's actually causing a lot of disruption in industries already you know for example uber or airbnb you know I mean, uber's uh, disrupting the transport industry and uh, we're seeing jobs from truck drivers to cab drivers disappear in a generation uh or less than a generation airbnb is disrupting the hotel industry uh what impact do you think these new entrepreneurs will have on the broader industries well i i think there's a lot of disruptive technology going on um, and, and if you look back and, and some of the the most significant strides that I personally have made financially has been in a chaotic environment during deregulation or uh, when you're seeing something that's disruptive. But if you look at the status quo, for instance, just take Uber. I don't know about in Australia, but in the United States, the, you know, the, the, the taxi industry and, and uh, local governments have really tried to stop it and, and they can't stop it. But if you, I mean, there's all kinds of industries you can look at. Look at, look at the music industry. Look at the travel industry. That that um, travel agents, you know, 15 years ago, were they used to get large commissions on, on booking airline and and travel, and, and now uh, that's completely gone online. And, and you're going to continue to see this. We've continued to see this, and. and it's pretty. It's very broad. It's, it's not limited to just technology. It's just somebody. It, this is. I, I spoke at University of Texas MBA school not too long ago, and at the MBA school, you know, you had folks there all trying to look for the next big thing, the next iPhone, the next Amazon, and you know, all their market success was how much money they could raise in venture capital. And my point to them was that you don't always have to invent the next big thing. It's just improve on an existing idea that you can improve and make better. And, and one of the examples that I use in my book, Unemployable, is dry cleaning. Uh, I hate dropping off dry cleaning. And one of, one of the dry cleaners in my area learned how to, to master the art of picking up and dropping off so that somebody doesn't have to take that to them. 
Now, that's not glamorous. It's not the next best thing, but I'll pay more money to that business to do that so I don't have to. So it's not always about the next big thing. It's about improving on existing businesses or products or services that you you have a better idea and can deliver it better. So what sectors do you see this happening in? I mean, uh, your example of the laundry is a very good, good very good one. What, where, what other areas do you see this happening in? Uh, I see it happening in communications. I, I see it happening in publishing. Uh, we see it happening in um, retail uh, and especially in services. I mean, uh, you know, for most people, the easiest business to start is to provide some kind of service, okay, where you don't have a product that you manufacture um, there's not a high cost of startup. So services, and, and I'll use the, the laundry as an example. I mean, this guy had one had one laundry mat, and he actually was actually contracting for, for the clothes to be clean. All he was really operating was a pickup delivery service, and, and now he's got over 300 locations. And all he did was figure out a way to solve a customer's problem for folks like me who were willing to pay more not to have to take up my laundry and, and pick it up. It, it, it could be something that simple. It's not very sexy, but um, it sure is effective. So uh, what these people have to do is just target areas that people need fixing up? Well, I always tell people when they're asking, hey, I want to go in business for myself, but I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what I want to do. So the first question I ask is, well, what are your interests? Now, you can't always turn a hobby into a business, but you know, it, you got to be able to understand who your customers are, and how you acquire those customers, but um, it, it's not always, it can't always be a hobby, but you got to, what is something that you don't like to do? Or when you walk into a place, it's, whether it's a restaurant or a retail business or something, what is it that you don't like? What, what would you like to see them do better that they're not providing you? And um, I'm always walking into businesses and, and trying to, to deconstruct or de-engineer what they do so I can understand if there's a better way to do it, try to understand what their revenue model is, what their costs are. That's just my nature. So you got to be inquisitive like that and trying to figure out, can identify something that you have interest in that you can monetize and, and make into a business? Then you got to find, uh, you got to solve a problem. You know, I always tell people that entrepreneurs, all an entrepreneur is, is somebody that brings value to an idea. So you have to have an idea and then you have to figure out how to bring value to that idea. Right, and uh, as you say in your book, uh, that makes you unemployable, meaning you'll never have a job because you'll have a business. Yeah, that's correct. And there's, you know, that that the book Unemployable is geared towards folks like me who, who it would be similar to a slow death to report to a job every day. And so I'm I'm of the my makeup is I would rather live on a dirt floor and eat beans. Then, then go have somebody else control my income and my schedule and my vacations and and so forth. So it, it, that's what this book's geared toward: people who, who 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 want to break out, but they don't know how to break out. They don't know what the what the steps are to take and what it takes to maintain that. And I've had a lot of failures along the way. Um, so I go through some of those failures and break down what some of those failures are and how to avoid them. Dave Roberts, it's a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Great. And just for the book Unemployable, they can go to Amazon.com or, or DefiancePress.com. And uh, the book is available in all formats and it's available globally. Looking forward to reading it, David. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, I'll tell you what, Leon, if enthusiasm counts for anything, he's got it. Absolutely. And now Saul.
So it's like following uh, Trump's address to Congress. Uh, all the uh, pundits said it was a new look, but he hasn't given any indication of when he's going to do his tax cuts or how he's going to fund everything. I mean, what's your view of it? Well, the, the first point I'd make is that it shows how low the bar had been set for Donald Trump that his speech to Congress last week week was seen as statesmanlike and presidential. It was certainly more structured and organised than his previous speeches had been since his rather dystopian inaugural address on the 20th of January. But it was still remarkably short of detail when it comes to the key elements of his economic program in particular. All we really know is that he's proposing large cuts in the corporate tax rate, significant cuts in taxes for the middle class, as he said, and some kind of border tax adjustment that purportedly attempts to provide the same treatment that a value-added tax or GST does for goods imported into the United States relative to goods and services exported from the United States without actually introducing a GST or a VAT that most other Western economies have in some form or another. There was absolutely no detail on trade policy, which is the other significant area of economic policy on which Donald Trump campaigned for the presidency through 2016. And uh, from that point, Point of view, we're still very much up in the air. We have no idea as to what the impact of the various proposals that Donald Trump wants to include in his first budget will have on the budget bottom line or on the level of public debt. And so, in my view, we're really no clearer to gaining a meaningful insight into exactly what economic policies Donald Trump intends to pursue than we were before that speech last week. Well, that's, that's quite interesting because since then, the Republicans have introduced the Obamacare repeal package and civil war has broken out in the GOP over it, and it looks like it could actually hurt Trump's core base, like such as a senior citizen. I mean, what's your view about this? Well, this highlights uh, one of the key difficulties that the Trump administration is likely to have with regard to just this one area of policy, the repeal of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. It's interesting that opinion polls suggest that many of Trump's supporters were opposed to Obamacare, but liked the Affordable Care Care Act, even though they were the two, they are the same thing. It illustrates the extent to which Trump's electoral success was partly based on uh, being critical of President Obama rather than a forensic analysis and critique of some of the policies that he brought in. There are certainly conservative Republicans who think that the bill which Speaker Ryan has presented to the House of Representatives doesn't go far enough in dismantling the Affordable Care Act. There are other more moderate Republicans who are concerned about the potential backlash from people in their districts who have appreciated the opportunity to gain access to better or cheaper health care. And he's also likely to face opposition from some Republican governors where there's been a significant take up of various plans uh, that were made available under the Affordable Care Act introduced by the Obama administration. So even though there is a piece of legislation now on the table in Congress about this, we're still none the wiser as to what's likely 
likely to emerge from it, if anything, at the end of the day. And this is, as I say, before we get to see anything of any detail at all about corporate tax, about personal income tax or about trade policy. Well, indeed, uh, Trump has said that he can't do deal with the tax issues until Obamacare is wrapped up. And that looks like it could take some time. Indeed. So it could well be that nothing really changes until um, perhaps the middle of next year. Uh, in the meantime, uh, financial markets and others remain in the dark as to what the government's intentions are with regard to the budget deficit and the level of public debt. Uh, all of these things are important matters for the, the direction of economic policy as well as for the confidence of financial markets. Uh, even the Federal Reserve, which may next week and is now widely expected to push through the third increase in interest rates for this cycle and to signal at least two more increases in interest rates over the course of this year, is saying that uncertainty over the direction of fiscal policy is one of the things that's complicating their decision making. Now, the, the other complicating thing, of course, is that Congress has to sort out the debt ceiling this month, and that could actually complicate things a lot further for the Trump administration, couldn't it? If the Republican majority in Congress was going to be consistent with the stance that they took at similar junctures under the Obama administration, the answer to that would be unequivocally yes. You would think that those Republicans who were willing to push the US to the brink of default in recent years rather than contemplate increasing the debt ceiling would take exactly the same view of further increases in debt under the Trump administration. But of course, intellectual consistency has never really been what this has been about, either in the past or now. Uh, oversimplifying only a little bit, I think, the Republicans in Congress have typically taken the view that it's only deficits and debt run up by Democratic administrations that are dangerous and damaging and need to be prevented by refusing to raise the debt ceiling, whereas deficits that are run up by Republican administrations, as they were under President Ronald Reagan, and as they were under the administration of George W. Bush, when Dick Cheney, among others, the vice president in that administration, was quoted as saying that Ronald Reagan taught us that debts don't and deficits don't matter. Um, that kind of uh, view tends to prevail when there's a Republican in the White House, as far as Republicans are concerned. So while I would imagine that there'll be some Republicans who will balk at raising the debt ceiling, and no doubt there will be some Democrats who will be sorely tempted to play the same sort of game with a Republican in the White House. Uh, nonetheless, I think at the end of the day, common sense on this score, at least if not on many others, will prevail and the Treasury will be allowed to uh, continue with managing its debt program in an orderly way. So the US debt will increase? Uh, yes, it will. And it may well increase a great deal more if Donald Trump's mooted plans to cut uh, to cut corporate and personal income tax significantly, whilst boosting government spending on the military significantly, and partly offsetting that by reductions in uh, what the Americans call uh, discretionary government spending, that is on everything except social security and healthcare. Uh, if uh, there's supposed to be some partial offsets there. Uh, again, another aspect of Trump's program that was referred to in his address to Congress last week, but on which very little detail was given, was the massive infrastructure program, the uh, thing that's supposed to emulate 
President Eisenhower's interstate highway program from the 1950s. Uh, that's supposedly going to trigger trillions of dollars of spending, in President Trump's words, on useful infrastructure. From one perspective, that might be a very good thing, but it's not at all clear where that spending is going to come from or who's going to finance it. I would think there's not a great deal of appetite on the part of congressional Republicans for increased spending. Rather, the idea appears to be providing yet more tax breaks to encourage private, uh, institutional and corporate investors to invest more in infrastructure. Uh, we'll have to see more details before we can make a judgment as to how effective and how costly that's likely to be. Now, the the other issue too, of course, is the uh, there's been a bull market. I mean, the day after uh, Trump's address, the Dow hit 21,000, which was extraordinary. And it's been a bull market ever since. I mean, but surely markets move in cycles. This can't last forever. Well, in, indeed you would. I mean, I think there are a couple of things at play here. One is that the share market is responding to clearer signals of an improvement in the US economy and in the profitability of major listed companies, something which was starting to become evident before the election result was known and is supported by the Federal Reserve's willingness to not only talk about raising interest rates, but actually to do it. I felt for a long time that the most tangible evidence that you could ask for of the US economy finally getting on a sustainable recovery footing would be when the Fed started to move determinedly away from the emergency interest rate settings that are the early days of the global financial crisis back in 2008. And that's clearly the path that the Fed is now on. We do have uh, more than a year of unemployment at less than the 5% rate that's traditionally regarded as consistent with full employment. The consumer price index for goods and services excluding food and energy has been running at more than 2% now for the best part of a year. And the Fed's preferred measure of core inflation, the personal consumption expenditure deflator, excluding food and energy is now also approaching the Fed's target of 2%. So all of that helps to paint a picture which stock market investors are going to be more enthusiastic about. The other element of the stock market's performance, of course, has been that markets have been willing to assume that all of the things that he talked about during the election campaign and since, Donald Trump will only do or be allowed to do the things which markets believe will boost growth, such as cutting corporate and personal income taxes and spending more on infrastructure, whilst he either won't seek to do or will be prevented from doing them markets assume the things he talked about during the election campaign and since that would be damaging to economic growth, such as starting a trade war with uh, its biggest and third biggest trading partners, namely China and Mexico. Now, as I said before, we really don't know uh, when Trump's pro-growth policies will come into force. We don't know how much they're going to cost. I have my doubts as to whether they will boost economic growth in the way that the markets seem to assume that they will. And of course, we also don't know to what extent Trump will eventually seek to pursue the things he talked about that markets would agree would be damaging to economic growth, particularly in the trade 
rates fit. So uh, while it, I can see that the market's bullish tone could continue for some time, uh, I believe that ultimately there's going to be a confrontation with reality, which can't be good for stock market investors. Uh, and in fact, would be more challenging the higher the markets go between now and whenever that confrontation with reality finally takes place. And that's when we will have a correction in the markets. Uh, that's what I would expect, but I wouldn't hold out any claim that I could foresee when that's precisely going to come. Saul like it's been a delight talking to you again. Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Okay, Leon, the news. China has set its GDP growth target at around 6.5% for 2017. That's down from last year's 6.7%. The world's second biggest economy is now focusing on risks and reforms to address the build-up of debt and industrial capacity. In his address to the opening of the annual meeting of the National People's Congress on Sunday, Premier Li Keqing said the world was entering a period of political and economic upheaval, without specifically mentioning the US President Donald Trump and Brexit. He suggested it was critical for China to get its own house in order. He said China would also maintain a prudent and neutral monetary policy, maintain the shift away from a loose monetary stance to discourage speculative investments. The People's Bank of China has left the benchmark interest rate at a record low. At the same time, it's tightening money market rates. Economists expect the PBOC to bring in further measures to cool lending without choking the wider economy. Mr. Lee said idle steel mills and coal mines would be shut down. The environment would be clean to, in his words, make our skies blue again, and there'd be room for more private sector and foreign companies and he foreshadowed a lowering of taxes and administrative fees for businesses by about 550 billion one that's about 105 billion aussie and more private sector involvement in healthcare, education aged care would boost consumption of services and the chinese government has set a target for urban job creation of over 11 million that's up by 1 million from 2016 so china i think is playing mr trump on a break they're making conditions better for western investment in china western trade in China, and I think they're very clever. Very, very clever. And also, they are really focusing on risks in this market, which is really important because they're tightening up massive debt levels there. And all that idle overcapacity with inefficient steel mills and, that's all and going. plants, that's all going. And the other big thing, of course, is um, the war on corruption. And that's essential if China's going to get to the position that it wants to be in. I think China will be very interesting to watch in light of what's happening now with Trump and trade. And of course, it's very important for Australia because it's Australia's biggest trading partner. As long as we don't have to choose between the two of them. Now... Fascinating news out of London. The House of Lords has defied British Prime Minister Theresa May yet again by voting to give its members more power to reject the final terms of the country's exit from the European Union. 366 to 268 votes slaps an extra condition to the European Union notification of withdrawal bill, which will give May the power to start divorce talks with the EU. That condition stipulates Britain's Parliament has to approve any Brexit deal before it's considered by the European Parliament. And in the event of talks breaking down, the British Parliament would vote on any decision to walk away. And the vote comes after the House of Lords this week voted in favour of changes requiring the government to protect EU citizens living in Britain, including their residents. 
residency rights within three months of starting the exit tour. And the House of Lords might well hamstring Theresa May's plan to negotiate a good deal with Britain as it would give the EU more bargaining power. And the government will move to overturn both changes when it presents a deal for approval to the House of Commons where it has a slim majority. Seven Tories voted against the original bill in the House of Commons. So defeat in the House of Commons will present major problems for Mrs May and she's already sacked Michael Heseltine who had been providing advice to the government and who was rallying the rebel Tories in the House of Lords. And underneath all that, one feels that Britain feels that Brexit was a terrible mistake. This is going to be a really messy process. And and I have to say, this does increase the bargaining power of the EU. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's going to be much tougher for them, for Britain to get a decent breakaway deal. And Theresa May has said she'll walk away if there's any deal that's not worth taking. So let's just watch that space. There's one curious point though and that is that Europe, some people in Europe the Germans particularly, are talking about the need to have a nuclear deterrent and Britain and France are the two nuclear powers in Europe Germany would need Britain because the French would want to keep all of their nuclear weapons on site. Germany would need Britain. Germany needs Britain. Yeah, so this is going to be a very very complicated procedure. Now Gary, in a development that surprised no one, the Reserve Bank of Australia decided to leave the official cash rate on hold. It was the sixth meeting in a row that the RBA had taken this course of action and the market had expected the decision. And the question now is when the RBA will unwind its recession-level monetary policy settings and raise interest rates. And the market is pricing a 20% chance of a rate rise in increase in October, although most economists don't expect it until next year. That said, I noticed Goldman Sachs is saying there'll be a rate rise on Cup Day. The bookies will be in shock. But everyone else, including our good friend uh, Shane Oliver, is saying a rate rise is a 2018 story. ANZ job advertisements fell 0.7% in February in seasonal adjusted terms after recording a solid 3.9% rise in January. Annual growth in job ads edged down to 6.9% this month. That's down from 7.1% in January. And that's not a good sign for what's going to be coming up in the labour force figures, Gary. Despite last week's uh, solid GDP figures, showing Australia had avoided a recession, record low growth in wages have dragged down consumer confidence. The latest ANZ Roy Moore consumer confidence figures show consumer confidence has plummeted to its lowest level since December 2016, falling 4.4% in the week ending 5th of March. And that completely reversed last week's gain. And it's going to do uh, Pauline Hanson a fair amount of good in WA election. Now, Australian businesses have started the year, however, upbeat with the latest DMB Business Expectations Index showing they're confident about growth in 2017. Confidence levels have not only reached an 18-month high, but plans for capital investments have reached their highest level in two years. According to the index, 60.4% of businesses say they're more optimistic about optimis- about business growth this year, well up on the 26% who say they're less confident, and 13.5% who are unsure. And the most confident businesses are manufacturers. Their confidence levels reached 67.2%. The least confidence were in the construction sector, with more than a third, or 36.2%, being less optimistic. And retailing was also low, with 31% of firms being less optimistic. After four months of decline, Australian construction has bounced back. The latest Australian Industry Group Housing Industry Association Australian Performance of Construction Index rose 5.4 points to 53.1 points in February. A figure over 50 shows the sector is expanding. Construction activity rebounded to its strongest level in more than two years. It surged 7.4 points above the level of the previous month. This was the strongest rate of expansion in activity in the 29 months since September 2014. House building was driving that. 
It rebounded in February with activity expanded at its highest rate since June 2016, offsetting the decline in apartment building activity. And after declines over the last four and five months, commercial and engineering construction have moved into positive territory. Everything's dependent on house building, so let's just watch that and see whether that can be maintained. Treasurer Scott Morrison says stamp duty cuts announced by the Victorian government last weekend would actually increase house prices because it does nothing about supply. And he cited the first homeowners grant, the $7,000 grant introduced by the Howard government as part of the original GST compensation package. And that, he said, had the same impact. The Victorian government policy announced by the Premier Daniel Andrews over the weekend exempts first home buyers from stamp duty if the property is valued at under 600000 It also provides discounts for properties worth between 600000 and 750000 And the scheme starts on the 1st of July. It's expected to benefit 25,000 first home buyers every year, and the state government says it will help remedy the housing budget affordability issue. But Mr Morrison says over the weekend that the forthcoming federal budget will tackle housing affordability, and he says the issue is you have to build more houses. Yeah, they've got a bigger develop, big development or a land release to the north of Melbourne that uh, may do something towards that. The problem the government has, of course, and, and everybody else, is providing the infrastructure to support them. Roads, you know, drains. Now, Crown Resort says it will raise approximately $500 million by buying $42.9 million of its ordinary shares. The $42.9 million shares will be 5.89% of its issued capital. And Crown will pay a value set at last Friday's closing price of $11.65 a share. And Crown announced the on-market share buyback on February the 23rd. That was when the company said it would not proceed with a partial float of some of its hotels and associated properties. And Crown said it had received the required regulatory approvals and intend to commence the on-market share buyback on or after March 20th. That's going to make James Packer a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. They, well, the figure on this one is about $300 million, isn't it? Now, the news coincides with a warning from the former chair of the New South Wales Independent Liquor and Gaming Authority that Crown's Australian casino licences would have to be reviewed if any of its staff under arrest in China are convicted of an offence. Now, 14 Crown staff, including three Australians, are in detention in Shanghai following a crackdown on gambling-related crimes. This guy said that he told Four Corners that convictions for Crown staff would place an authority like the regulatory body in Australian notice and require further inquiries to be made. And there's not a lot you can do from Australia with the uh, Chinese judicial system. Australia's richest woman, Gina Reinhardt, has added another cattle station to a growing empire. She's acquired Aruna Station, which is 100 kilometres west of Catherine. She bought the 147,510 acre hectare property with 15,000 head of cattle from well-known beef producers John and Kate McLaughlin. Now, Mrs. Reinhardt's company, Hancock Prospecting, has been building the cattle business since last year when it bought three cattle operations in the Northern Territory outright and took majority ownership of the S. Kidman & Company properties in December. And she said Aruna fitted in well with the company's investments in the North. Now, according to property record, the station sold for $13.5 million. In 2006, it sold for $6.4 million. Now, Ms. Reinhardt is one of many rich listers, like, for example, retail entrepreneur Brett Blundy, now investing in the beef industry. And for good reason, too, because Australian Bureau of Agriculture and Resource Economics and Sciences data shows that beef cattle values have risen from $3.37 a kilogram in 2011-12 to $5.37. 40 in 2015-16, so on the back of rising demand from Asia. And the forecast for 2016 is a price of $5.53. The Chinese middle class likes beef. And finally, infrastructure and mining company Downer EDI has acquired New Zealand construction company Hawkins. Downer said the acquisition would be funded through existing debt facilities, would be earnings accretive in its first year, and a price was not disclosed. And Downer Chief Executive Grant Fenn said Hawkins was an excellent strategic fit for his company 
which provides services in a range of markets, including transport, telecommunications and water. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Next week, we've got a terrific interview with Michael Anderson and Lynn Stevenson from RMIT, and they're going to be talking to us all about RMIT Sustainability Week. In the meantime, for all of you around the world listening to us, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBIZ and on Facebook. Looking forward to talking to you next week.